In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Lord, we ask your most Holy Spirit to guide us today in trying to understand two very difficult uh, books of the Old Testament. Help us to open our eyes to see that even though they are entirely different and almost in opposite direction, that God can work through all different forms of media to get our attention. That is what is the purpose of studying these two particular books together. So we ask your blessing on our efforts this day, and as we go forth studying the rest of the wisdom books of the Old Testament. So we thank you and praise you in all things, in Jesus' name. How many of you actually read all of these uh, books? Well, good. Uh, that's that's a fairly good percentage considering the material. You know, uh, I particularly found them uh, quite interesting. Um, not always educational, but interesting. And as we go through them today. Uh, I'd like to hear your viewpoints as well. All right. Before we begin, though, the whole purpose of this course really is to try to understand what is wisdom in the sense that is indicated by uh, these books here. It is not, you know, street smarts of any kind. It is not being uh, clever or shrewd in any particular way, but it is the way of God that we really want to understand. So, uh, I have here an excerpt from the Magnificat magazine. Uh, actually, this is for last week, but nevertheless, it applies, I think, quite well. And this is St. Thomas's Aquinas' uh, understanding of wisdom in the Christian sense. Now, the, you know, the, the wording uh, in all of Thomas's writings is a little bit stiff, so bear with me because reading it out loud is, mm, you know, not as easy it might, as it might sound. <clears throat> Among all human pursuits, the pursuit of wisdom is more perfect, more noble, and more useful, and more full of joy. It is more perfect because, insofar as a person gives himself to the pursuit of wisdom, so far does he even now have some share in true beatitude or happiness. And so a wise man has said, Blessed is the man that shall continue in wisdom. And that's from the book of Sirach, which we'll be reading in a couple of weeks. It is more noble because through this pursuit, man especially approaches to a likeness to God, who made all things in wisdom, which comes from Psalms, which we'll get into next week. And since likeness is the cause of love, the pursuit of wisdom especially joins man to God in friendship, 
Remember, as I said the first week, wisdom is only active among two or more people. And, uh, a wise person acting solely for himself is not wise. Okay? <coughs> and that is why it is said of wisdom that she, female, she is an infinite treasure to people which they that use become the friends of God. And that's from wisdom, the book of wisdom. And that's what we'll get into towards the end of the course, which to me is probably the most beautiful and useful of all of these. It is more useful because through wisdom we arrive at the kingdom of immortality. For the desire of wisdom bringeth to the everlasting kingdom, which is also from the book of wisdom. It is more full of joy because her conversation hath no bitterness nor her company any uh, tediousness, but joy and gladness, again, from the book of wisdom. And so, in the name of the divine mercy, I, that is St. Uh, Thomas Aquinas, I have the confidence to embark upon the work of a wise man even though this may surpass my powers, and I have set myself the task of making known, as far as my limited powers will allow, the truth that Catholic faith professes, and of setting aside the errors that are opposed to it. To use the words of Hillary, that is Saint Hillary, I have <laughs> not not that Hillary. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> which one? <laughs> I am aware that I owe this to God as the chief duty of my life. That my every word and sense may speak of him. <laughs> oh, I never thought about that when I was reading this. <laughs> oh well, you gotta have a laugh now and then. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, well, I didn't mean to spoil it. <laughs> Maybe we'll get back into that when we get to the Book of Wisdom. <laughs> <clears throat> All right. uh, oh well, uh, now I lost my place. <laughs> Today we're going to be studying, like I said, two books that uh, are pretty much opposites of each other. The purpose really is uh, to show that God can work. In with any media or in any direction as long as we are open to it. And that is really the whole purpose of trying to understand these books to see do they line up with the general teachings of Christ and the church. And beginning with Kohelet, again it is Kohelet. Think of the Q as a K. 
all right, which will help you to pronounce it correctly. Kohelet, or also in the Greek version, it is Ecclesiastes. I think Kohelet, once you get used to it, is an easier word to pronounce. One is from the Hebrew, and one is from the Greek. All right. <clears throat> this book was written in the, around the third century B.C. And it is a very skeptical or pessimistic uh, rendering of one man's thoughts. But you have to understand some of the background of what is happening in this third century B.C. In Judaism, the monarchy, which lasted from the time of Saul and David down to the Babylonian exile, has now collapsed. There are no more kings in the Jewish tradition. Yes, somebody will say, I'm sure, well, what about King Herod and his uh, successors? Well, he was a puppet king put in by the Romans, uh, more or less for looks than anything else. He didn't have a great deal of power. So he's not really considered one of the Davidic line of kings. So there was no kings. Because of that, the party of the priests sort of took control while the people were in Babylon. And they were the ones that came to power in a way for a sense. But then later on, uh, beginning in the third century, you had a breakup of the priesthood of, uh, in Judaism, and other parties began to filter in to leadership. And by the time of Christ, the Sanhedrin, which was the body of the temple rulers, and very much like our Congress, was made up of several parties, all right? The Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Zealots, uh, the Indomians, and uh, a couple others, uh, minor groups, but nevertheless, very much like our Congress today, and probably acted just as naive and childish as our Congress does today, but that's beside the point. Anyways, around the third century, you had all of these factions coming together, and on top of that, you had the Greek Empire, which began in the early part of the, the third century, or fourth century, I guess it was, BC, uh, imposing Hellenism on all of the conquered people including the Jewish people. That's the basis for the book of Daniel and the two books of Maccabees, which came a little bit later, uh, more in the middle of the second century B.C. <clears throat> but you have all of these factions going on, all of this turmoil uh, in political life, in religious life, and in social life. And so this fellow is writing his thoughts about what does all of this mean? 
why should I try to figure it out? Because, after all, we're all going to end up in the same place at the same time when it's all over. Which, of course, we know is not true. But that was the prevailing thinking. Remember, <clears throat> these people did not have a true sense of who God was and what God's purpose was. It was not totally revealed to them until the time of Christ. And so they were still muddling through their rather primitive thinking in what was religion. What was the proper relationship with Jesus, with, with God? Obviously Jesus wasn't in existence as yet. And so they didn't have the theology uh, that we have today. And that is why we should be so grateful to the people that came before us, such as St. Thomas, uh, and St. Augustine, and, and St. <laughs> I, I won't mention his name, St. Hilary, <coughs> uh, and a few others, uh, plus, you know, the Pope and the formalities of Rome. We should be grateful and thankful for that kind of organization that not only sets us straight, but keeps us on the right road. The book of Kohelet is very well written by a man who is obviously well-educated, uh, perhaps wealthy, but now he sits in sort of self-judgment as to what does all this mean? Why should we strive to get ahead because it becomes meaningless in the long run. We have to leave whatever we've acquired to someone else when we die. You see, the thinking at that time was when you die, that was it, and there was nothing else. Well, we know that there is something else. We know that God is waiting for us, and though the body dies, the soul continues on. And there is so much more uh, after death than before waiting for us. And that's the way we should look at it. Is that, yes, we have our ups and downs on this earth, but once we have passed from this earth to the next life, God is waiting for us. And it depends on what we have done. I often say that our life is God's gift to us. And what we do with it is our gift to him. And it is based on what we have done with our life, whether or not we will get in to live with God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for all eternity, uh, or whether, you know, we will be damned and there is no in-between. Yes, there is what we call purgatory, but that's a temporary thing which assures us that we will eventually get to heaven. So after purgatory disappears, then there's either, you know, hell or heaven. And 
it depends on how we work together and what we do with our lives that we are being judged by. So often people will say <coughs> that God's ways are unfair. Well, I don't think so. I personally don't think so. He has told us. He has laid out the plan. He has told us what life is supposed to be all about. And whether we partake of what he has told us and use that information to guide our lives will be the criteria that we are measured by when we get to the pearly gates. Now, I don't see anything wrong with that. It would be different if he sprinkled us with, you know, sprinkled the earth with human beings and said, okay, boys and girls, you're, you're on your own from here on, and left us alone with nothing. And that's almost the way the people were prior to Christ. Not quite, because they had the Ten Commandments, they had Moses, they had David, they had the prophets, and all of those were rejected in one way or another, particularly the prophets. You have 15 prophets in the Old Testament. Three of the great, uh, three of them are considered the greater prophets. Uh, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah. And the other 12 are considered the minor prophets. That doesn't mean that what they had to say was of minor consequences or value. It just means that they wrote much less. They were all measured by a quantity of words, which seems like a strange way of measuring, but nevertheless, uh, that's the way they were done. And that's the way they were placed in the Bible, not by the time that they wrote or in any chronological order. They were placed in the Bible by quantity of verbiage. Isn't that kind of odd? You have the same thing in the New Testament, though. All the letters of St. Paul are in the same... Uh, they're placed in the New Testament <clears throat> in the same way. Not by the time they were written, but by the quantity of verbiage. Because, going back to the Old Testament, because people could not remember or the writings did not have any dates on them. And the writings, most of the writings, had no authorship attached to them. True authorship. You have both of these books today are attributed to David, I mean to Solomon. And that is not true. We know that Solomon lived in the 10th century BC. These were written much, much later. But the practice was if you were an unknown writer, in order to get your material read and accepted, you had to attach it to somebody who was knowledgeable. And because these are considered uh, writings of wisdom, or intended to be that writings of wisdom, Solomon was always uh, 
considered to be the wisest of all men who ever lived. Well, that's a little bit debatable. He had 500 wives. I don't think that's too wise. And on top of that, he had 200 concubines. Yeah. So I don't think that was too wise either, you know. Uh, so that's questionable, but that was just a side issue. Uh, okay. Uh, so we have to kind of step back from some of these things and look at it in the way of, of wisdom. How would God interpret this? And then we pray, you know, as you should always when you're studying scripture. Ask for the Holy Spirit's guidance because that's part of his job. All right. The Holy Spirit, as we've indicated by our little circular diagram, which all of you have, uh, the job of the Holy Spirit is to take the teachings of Christ and the church and to help us, not only as collectively as church, but as individuals, to return to the Father. And if we don't make use of that help, then we've got no way to complain. We can't have any excuses if we don't use the tools that God has given us. And so, please, when you are studying scripture or just reading it for information purposes or prayer or using it for prayer purposes, ask the Holy Spirit for guidance in understanding what you are reading. And I'm sure that you'll get more out of it that way than if you simply started on your own. Okay. Now, <coughs> excuse me. There are uh, three or four main items in the book of Kohelot that I think we should review here to see what is what is really going on. Uh, he questions the uh, prevailing uh, view and purpose of retribution. And very much like the book of Job, Kohelot is sitting there pondering What's it all worth? Of course, he didn't experience uh, the dramatic uh, devastation of property and family and so forth and so on. But nevertheless, he has acquired apparently substantial wealth. And he's sitting there pondering as to well, what it's all, what is it, is it all about? He's probably no happier as a wealthy man than when a time before he was wealthy. Uh, and things haven't changed. Wealth hasn't brought him any great happiness. Uh, and he knows that when he dies, he's going to have to leave that behind, uh, as we all will. And so, what is the purpose of life? So, he's saying there's just nothing new under the sun. Well, we've heard many people say that. I bet every one of your mothers has said that at some point in time. Uh, 
Uh, and should we look at that in that way or not? What is your thoughts? Anyone have a particular thought? Hey, read it. In a way, yes. Yes. Depression. Uh, that could set in. You know, there wasn't any doctors that would prescribe a handful of pills to change that. Um, depression. But it probably goes deeper than that. You know. There's just nothing new under the sun. In other words, he has probably experienced everything that was possible at that time for enjoyment and found that, eh, ho hum, uh, just nothing new under the sun. Anyone, anyone else have a different viewpoint? That's probably true also, Hernando says. He's not experiencing true happiness. All right, that's true. Uh, many people feel that happiness comes from material pleasures. Uh, and really, that isn't the case. Happiness comes from relationships. And most importantly, our relationship with Christ, which, of course, he didn't have the opportunity but God was there, and the temple was there in the third century. It was rebuilt from after the Babylonian exile, and then it was rebuilt again in the uh, last century of the B.C. area by Herod. Uh, so the temple was there. They had structure. Judaism had structure. Uh, it had a form of hierarchy. It had the Old Testament. Most of the books were written by that time, particularly the book of Deuteronomy. But he still feels there's just nothing new under the sun. And he never changed that. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Now, we got to be a little careful in understanding his meaning of the word vanity. We think of vanity as something... You know, somebody who is vain, who is conceited, or who is uh, haughty in some way. That's not what this means. Vain is a, has the meaning in this book of being uh, not worthless, but of no particular value. Okay? No substantial value to make a person happy. So vanity of vanities. All is vanity. <coughs> And we know that that in itself is not true. God has given us all kinds of beautiful things. The whole idea of uh, earth. You know, when we see these, uh, well, when we see television views of other planets or even drawings of other planets, they're all barren, you know, hills and valleys and uh, soil, but nothing else. Um, if you compare that to the planet of Earth and all of its beauty, uh, you just have to drive, a, you know, less than 100 miles to see some magnificent beauty right here in the state of California. So we have a number of things 
that can bring us pleasure because we connect them hopefully with God. When you stand at the edge of the ocean, and I'm sure all of you have done that, uh, or a very large lake, and you see this wide span of earth, doesn't it conjure up a little bit of how beautiful this earth is and God gave us all of this beauty. So we can't say that nothing is new under the sun. Every time the sun comes up, we have a new life, a new day. Uh, the seasons in themselves uh, present all kinds of new opportunities and problems too when you have allergies. <laughs> Everything has... Oh, yes, ma'am. Okay, I have a question. Yes. Now, they, at that time you said they did not feel, uh, they did not believe in an afterlife. Most of them did not, and some of them still do not. And does Cornelius, uh, was he married? Did he have children? We don't know. Okay. My question from that is, if he, had, he did not see any value of what he had, did they not plan... Well, some degree, but it was more legally already formed for him. The whole idea is when a man died, all of his possessions went automatically to his oldest son. The wife was left out, but it was up to the son to take care of his mother. And that was a legal requirement, so it was already fixed. He didn't have much say-so. Now, if he had no son, then the wife could receive the inheritance. But you see, remember in the Gospel, where the widow of name is about to bury her only son, and Jesus comes upon the scene, his compassion went out to the widow because her only son has now died and she would be left without any means of support unless she was independently wealthy. Yes, Joe. Would things go to his, uh, to his brother as the next uh, we think so. patriarch, yeah, whoever the, yeah, we the, think the so, strongest but male well, this, yes, the, the lead, uh, the oldest male in the family, yes. But the mother is left out of it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, now I, I assume that there probably were exceptions allowed to that too. Yeah. Or provisions made prior to, I don't know. We have, you know, but that was the general belief at the time. Yeah. But the whole idea of there is a point in time there's a beautiful song that we often sing in church. Don't ask me to sing it, please. <laughs> but, you know, there is a time for everything, a time to live and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to harvest, 
that kind of thing. I think it's a very beautiful point, uh, song, and it has a lot of meaning. And it comes from this book of Coelho here. Yes, Mike. Let me rephrase that, if I may, for the benefit of everyone. The point that Mike is making is the prevailing thought was that if you were uh, wealthy and well-off uh, and well-educated, etc., etc., that you were being blessed by God. If you were poor or sick or uh, deformed or any other misfortune, you were being cursed by God because you were a sinner. That was an automatic thought and that didn't come out of Jewish tradition or, or belief. Originally it came actually from the Egyptians when they were still in Egypt. Okay. Remember the people that I mean this is going back quite a ways but the Jewish people that went to Egypt and the Jewish people that developed while they were in Egypt for three or four hundred years, they knew no other religion or faith system other than what they saw around them, the Jewish faith, which was polytheistic, many gods. A lot of different things were gods, not only people, uh, including the pharaoh, uh, but other, you know, animals and so forth and so on. Uh, that was their experience until they came back into the promised land under the direction of uh, originally Moses and then Caleb uh, and Joshua. Okay. Well, they still didn't have a great deal of uh, structure in their faith. They had no theology. They did have the Ten Commandments. And out of that Moses did try to embellish much of that so that they would better understand what it was. But they took along with them many of the beliefs uh, that they had experienced in Egypt. And then, later on, when they were carted off to Babylon, they picked up a lot of the beliefs of the people in Babylon or the whole Mesopotamian area. And so they brought those things back with them because they were getting all confused. Luckily they had the book of Deuteronomy uh, with them in Babylon and that is where the synagogue system began. But again, theology was really missing. And in many cases it is still missing out of Jewish traditions and understanding. But the whole idea of 
the rich are blessed and the poor are cursed, uh, continued right up to the time of Christ. And it didn't really originate within the Jewish people. It came from the surrounding areas and was absorbed, you might say, by them, as well as many other traditions. Um, and as we see, uh, even in the <coughs> pardon me, even in the third period of Jewish history, that is the period during the monarchy, a lot of the police of the surrounding nations filtered in to Judaism, such as the worship of the king as if he were a god. Not David, nor Solomon, but from Solomon's son, Rehoboam, and on down, all of the, not all, but because there, there were a few exceptions, obviously, but most of those kings uh, took it upon themselves, well, you know, they were equal to God. And we'll see that next week when we get into some of the Psalms, where it is hard to distinguish when they're talking about king, do they mean the king that is presently the ruler at the time, or do they really mean God? And it is very difficult to distinguish between the two, because in their minds, the king was a god. A, a god. Yeah. No, they knew that there was the God, but they also, because polytheism was very common among the nations surrounding them, so they figured, well, why not? You know, so gradually the, the, the kingship, which began with Saul and David, uh, and that was considered, and Solomon really, that was considered the golden age of Judaism because they were doing things right for a change. But then it broke down with all of the successors over a period of 500 years or almost. Uh, yes, Sarita? Well, the priests were a very minor influence originally. But in Babylon... The priest became the only voice that had any power. The only voice uh, that the Jewish people would listen to. And so they kind of stepped in and took over. Hmm? Uh, they took over and developed the synagogue system as teachers. But because of that, they became really the power source. People looked to them for guidance and direction. And then when they came back, they were released by Cyrus and Darius. We heard that in the last two or three days in, in church in the first reading. Uh, the priests continued to be the only uh, legal voice as well as uh, religious guidance. And that developed and continued right up to the time of Christ when the high priest was 
the major ruler of the Jewish people. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Well, it sounds like they were really lost. In many ways, they were. Yes. What is the term rabbi? It wasn't used uh, at all uh, until probably the second or third century BC, and that's why that because the the word rabbi technically means teacher in Hebrew, and it came out of this whole idea of the priest taking control, you might say, for lack of any other control. Uh, in Babylon, in establishing the synagogue system. Yes, yes, that's right. Yes, yes. Well, right uh, after about that same time, you see, after they came, the question was, when did the belief of the Messiah uh, begin? <clears throat> after they came back from. Babylon, and reestablished and kind of settled down, they began to realize because they were under the domination of the Persians, and then the Greeks, and then the Romans, so they began to realize that they would never be uh, sovereign rulers of their own territory. They tried to do that, and briefly they were under the Maccabees, but that was a very, very short period of time. All right. <laughs> so, they began to pick up through reading the book of Deuteronomy, which is my favorite of the Old Testament, uh, the idea that their concept of God was wrong, and that there is only one God, and we have to worship him. And the book of Deuteronomy is often referred to as the book of laws because it brings out so much of what Moses tried to teach them and many things that came up later in the same vein, even though not under Moses, but later people. It was put back into the book of Deuteronomy as if it was from Moses. And so it was looked as the most authoritative book and they began to see that they were doing things wrong. And this whole idea of <clears throat> being a sovereign ruler was fading. And they wanted some idea of, well, then there must be a new promised land, which the prophets had been telling them for quite a while. But they didn't want to hear that, you know. They didn't want to hear about something new. They wanted their promised land. Well, they began to realize there was going to be a new promised land. So the idea gradually developed starting around the beginning of the 5th century B.C. and down to, you know, this time period here of around the 3rd. And then the idea of, well, who's going to lead us into this new promised land and they were thinking of somebody like David, who actually reorganized uh, the leadership of the Jewish people after uh, 
they returned from Egypt into the Promised Land, way back in the 10th and 11th century BC. So the idea then, well, once they began to realize that they were headed towards a new Promised Land, they still, you know, were vague about where this new Promised Land was going to be, and but they needed now somebody to lead them. It was they were always looking for a leader, somebody to hang their hat on, so to speak, um, to guide them. And that is when the idea of a Messiah began to develop, but not a Messiah that was going to be God himself. That was never, ever in the picture. But it was going to be somebody like David who would route them from the Persians or the Greeks or the Romans or whoever. And that's as far as they ever got. And they still haven't gotten the message. Does that help? Yeah. So it would be the latter part of the third century or the second century in that era somewhere. Because in the book of Daniel, which came out of the Maccabean War period, which was the middle of the second century BC, did you uh, have any uh, concept of God uh, and mankind meeting again after death? Hebrew. It is Hebrew. Yes. Yeah, but it was pronounced and spelled slightly different. It's, uh, I have to stop and think now. Uh, Meshua. Yeah. Meshua would be the way of pronouncing it correctly. Just like I told you last week, our word of Rosh Hashanah is improper pronunciation, but even the Jewish people use it that way. Technically, it should be Rosh Hashanah. Yeah. The, the accent is always on the A-H part, which is the last symbol in many of the important words of Jew, and it is in reference to God himself. Yeah. Someone else have a question? Yes, ma'am. Uh, there was to some degree, but not to the sense that we think of it today. No. That's why I asked my question. Uh, this man didn't see any value to his life, and what's the reason for it? Could he have, you know, taken in a border or somebody, or you know, sponsored somebody? No, no, no. That was not in the cards. In fact, they went very, you know, these were very exclusive people. They would not deal uh, socially with anyone outside of the Jewish race. And if you married uh, somebody outside the Jewish race, oh, God forbid, you'd be, you know, written off. In fact, one of the greatest examples of that is Joseph. Now, Joseph, the second youngest son of Jacob, way back in the book of Exodus, uh, no, uh, Genesis. <clears throat> uh, who the guy, the the one of the twelve sons that 
was sold uh, in slavery to the Egyptians and became very wealthy. He married uh, an Egyptian woman and had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Well, when they came, when the Jewish people came back into Israel after their release from Egypt, they were parceled, the land was parceled out in accordance with uh, the, the various tribes, the 12 tribes. But because of the Levites being assigned the job of priesthood, they did not get any land. They were to live among the other uh, tribes. And Joseph's portion, because he married uh, outside of the Jewish race, uh, his land was divided between his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Well, they, you know, many of the women had their own jobs. It wasn't that women were totally put down. Uh, There's a number of stories where women had uh, means of some kind or inherited some kinds of means. That, That whole subject is rather confusing. There is no hard and fast ways to explain it. Uh, you, you take uh, the books of Ruth and Esther uh, and Judith. They're all stories of women who had money or power uh, of some kind or some wealth. So, you know, we have no way of knowing. We know what the laws said. But obviously, there must have been ways around it. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's right. Ruth certainly didn't have anything at all because she left everything behind and followed her mother-in-law back to Judaism and they became gleaners. Yeah. Uh, Right. Yeah. Okay. Yes, Fernando? Just for information, like those who died, Jewish did not provide for the widows or the women. But for information, in Indonesia, if somebody dies, it's just for the wife or the mother or the daughter, not the men. Oh, well, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. the opposite, ex- yeah, opposite extreme. Yeah, it brings them that Mm-hmm. Well, traditions change. Okay. I think one of the last things that Kohalith is really uh, questioning here is the meaning of life and death. Well, as we all know, that changed with Christ and his life, death, and resurrection. But the teachings of Christ and the church is what we have to deal with and live with. And we know that uh, Kohalith's concept that there was no meaning really after all because according to his thinking everybody ended up in the same place but he couldn't say what that place was. Uh, 
And of course, that isn't true. Uh, <clears throat> we know that there are only two states of being, heaven and hell, not places as we think of them, but, you know, heaven or total perfect happiness or total damnation. There are, there is no in between in the final phase. And that is the way we have to look at it. And it's unfortunate, I think, uh, in today's society, we have so many particularly young people, but not only young people, a lot of old people who just don't want to be bothered by thinking about that. I, I know someone who, uh, the moment you start bringing up some rather complex ideas, uh, this person will say, oh, I just, I'm too old, I don't want to bother with thinking about that. And I'm thinking, well, you know, you are closer to the end than the beginning. It's better that you start thinking about it, but, you know, you, you can only do so much. But as we know, there is a value to life. As we've said, as I've said earlier, our life is a gift from God. We are given free will and we are giving rules and regulations and we are giving so many other things. <clears throat> and therefore, what we do with those things, how we interpret them, and how we treat others and live with others is our gift back to God. And you want to give something that is so... Uh, sooty or, or uh, off color or whatever, but look at the young people today and some of the things that you see on television and some of the things that entertainers are doing to draw uh, large crowds. <clears throat> you don't find an entertainer today that can stand up with a decent voice and just stand there and sing. Uh, they got to gyrate all around and, you know, be half unclothed and so forth, simply to draw attention. Well, to me, that is, that is not talent. That's guts. Pardon my bluntness, but, uh, it is. Uh, you know, my children think that I'm a real old fuddy-duddy because I, I don't have a smartphone and I don't want one. I have an old flip-top cell, cell, you know, but that, that's almost passe nowadays. Uh, but it, it goes as far as I need. And, uh, anyways. So, the meaning of life. There is a meaning of life. And again, what we do with it is up to God and if we, you know, disagree or ignore that, then God is going to ignore us. Uh, you don't have any structure in your life. Well, that's right. Uh, the thing is, so many people say, well, I prayed to God for this and that and so forth and so on. I said, well, you know, if you ignore him most of your life, how can you expect him to answer a prayer, you know, in, in the middle when... He doesn't know you. 
as, as I've often said in previous uh, lectures, there is a story in the New Testament that I think demonstrates that quite well. We've all heard the story of the ten wise, the ten virgins, you know, or ten bridesmaids or whatever they're called in various Bibles are called it different things. Uh, five wise, five are wise and five are foolish. The five wives have been preparing for this event and bringing it up oil for their lamps, but the foolish ones uh, neglected to bring sufficient oil, and so they were told to go off and get some. And when they got back, by that time, the bridegroom uh, arrived. The bridegroom in Jewish uh, marriage ceremonies was always the more important person. Uh, <coughs> and when the bridegroom arrived, they all went into the uh, reception hall or banquet room, whatever, and the door was locked, which was a very common thing at the time. <clears throat> and so when the five foolish ones come back, you know, they rap at the door and say, let us in, let us in. And the answer to that in the Bible is, I can't let you in because I don't know you. And I think if you think about that, that can be a frightening thing if that's what God says to us when we get to the pearly gates. I don't know you. Why should I let you in? Goodbye. Right. Let's go on to the Song of Songs. It's a beautiful writing, and it could have many different meanings. Uh, I, if you go into this book here, you know, there's about six pages of meanings. And I, I think that um, the one I gave you last week is, covers it well enough. There are many different interpretations. And for quite a while, the church tried to teach that this was a relationship between God and his church. Well... That might sound good now, but to the people at the time it was written around the second century BC, uh, there was no church. And there was uh, nothing to really associate it with an organization of any kind. The whole idea is that it is a series of love poems that went through several different reiterations and was developed at a time period when people were starving really for entertainment and the wedding or a wedding in Jewish ceremonies or Jewish traditions generally took about a week. Uh, from the time of the original betrothal to the time of the consummation of the marriage was about a week. And therefore, it was really the only time when people could really get together and have a good time. All right. So, the church has finally come down to, to saying in more 
recent years. But this is a series of love poems between a man and a wife. All right, and there's nothing wrong with that, even though they're uh, rather quite explicit. Um, there is nothing wrong with talking about human love between a man and a woman, and that should be <coughs> that should be recognized and appreciated as if it were a relationship between God and mankind. So that is why we study this particular song uh, or this particular book. Uh, it is to clarify the fact that relationships, human, physical, even erotic relationships between a husband and a wife are perfectly normal. It is a gift that God has given us uh, for a variety of reasons because, as he says right up in the early part of the book of Genesis, it is not good for man to be alone and to have companionship is one of the greatest of all gifts, companionships of this kind. So, it celebrates, the book itself celebrates the whole idea of the beauty of human relationships and companionships. <coughs> Anyone have a different uh, opinion or thought about it? I just didn't like it. <laughs> and I thought, you know, there's things in there that some of it's too interesting. Well, to people today, you know, and Anna's point is well taken. People today would not uh, verb or, or voice it that way. But you got to remember, you got to think about this in the time it was written, when shepherding was probably the, the single largest um, occupation, thank you, uh, for people, and not only poor people, but even wealthy people. You know, King David himself was a shepherd. And so shepherd and all of the idea of the relationship of sheep to mankind is sort of a symbolic of God's relationship with us. And that's why in many of the parables, many of the stories of the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, mankind is mentioned in a way uh, or in the form of sheep. So there is a, a connection there. So we, you know, you, I can understand, you know, your thinking if you're thinking of, of it in today's understanding of sheep and that kind of thing, you wouldn't really want to get too close to most of the sheep today, especially the sheep and the goats that eat, uh, you know, the hay and the, the fields around here. Um, you know, you can generally smell them for quite a ways away. 
you don't want to do that. But there was a whole different viewpoint of shepherding and the relationship and the need for the sheep at that particular time. Yes, Terry? That's right. Your love is so deep, it's not based on physical attraction or, or different, what attracts one person may not attract the other, but that all of your attributes, I love your big nose, <laughs> and I love you, you know, uh-huh. all of these things, it shows you how deep love it is, what love is, whether you're rich or poor or old or young. She longed for him, not that he does, but they go to bed. <laughs> and he, and, and, and he longed for her no matter how she looked. Yes. No, I, I, I thank you. I, I think that's a very good way of presenting it. Love, particularly, we hope that love is blind. When we consider God loving us, there's a lot of things that we would rather he didn't see. But he lets us know that in the end result, if we truly love him and are sorry for those things, that he will overlook them. Very good point, and and nicely presented, too. Thank you. Anyone else? Well, it's not the easiest uh, book to describe or really get into with a great deal of feeling, but I'm glad Terry did. I hope that the rest of you might take another look at it and see uh, if you can find something uh, different in there after our discussion. Anything else? That's an awaking that when you marry a person, you marry the whole family. Okay? Yeah. Whether you like it or not, yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, you marry the whole family. And and to some degree, that, that is true. I mean, it's not, I'm not joking. Uh, because even though you may love your, your spouse, some of her family or his family for the women uh, may not be that acceptable. But you still have to go along with it because you are now part of their family. Yeah. Okay. Very nicely put. Thank you. All right. Next week we're going to get into the Psalms. Now the Psalms... Uh, I really don't know how to classify them, and 
neither do a lot of the publishers of Bibles. Because if you had a 10 different Bibles set up here, you might find that the Psalms are in different places and positions of the Bible. But nevertheless, they're included here because they fit into the wisdom books probably better than in any other place. They certainly are not historical books. They are certainly not part of the Torah or the first five books of the Bible. Uh, so they fit here. Now in Jewish uh, scripture, they're just classified as part of the other writings, sort of a very general term, uh, as most of these books are uh, that we are studying here, the other writings. But in Christian cycles and in our liturgies, you know that there is a small part of a psalm in every mass that is said, no exceptions. But often we neglect to really understand where that psalm came from and what is its meaning and what is its relationship to the other writings in the Mass. And so that's what we're going to be talking about next week. Now, there are 150 Psalms. The same is same number in all Bibles. Even the Jewish scripture recognizes 150. In Jewish writings and in some Christian books, the numbering system is a little different. There are, are some numbers around eight or nine that are combined, and then there are some numbers later on that are split into two. But in general, they are all pretty much the same, and that's why they come back to the same total number in all scriptures, all books. Uh, but the Psalms have a great number of different meanings. And if you know the time period in which they were written, it can enhance your understanding of what is being presented. Unfortunately, there are no dates. Unfortunately, there are no writers. So we don't know much about when these books were written, but some of the language will tell us. And I'll show how to recognize some of that next week. All right. But what you have to understand is that the Psalms were written over a long period of time. And they reflect the various changes in Judaism that developed over that same long period of time. I'll give you an example. The monarchy, that is the kings, first and second kings, beginning with Saul. Saul came along around the 11th century BC. And the monarchy existed down to the 6th century BC and ended approximately there because it truly failed, failed God because the people ignored the, the uh, I'm sorry, not the, 
The prophets is what I'm been trying to say. The, the prophets that came along during the monarchy to try to balance the evil and the wrong thinking that developed during that time period uh, were ignored. And in fact, most of them were murdered by their own people because they didn't like what the prophets had to say. But the Psalms that came during that time often talk about the king. And the king is represented almost as if it were God. And when you're reading some of the Psalms uh, that reference the king, it's almost impossible to determine are they talking about God as king or are they talking about their earthly king. Uh, and we'll see a lot of other changes. Also, there are a lot of different kinds of psalms. Where did the psalms come from? They were not personal prayers. Because personal prayer was not common in early Jewish religion or faith or tradition. The praying didn't come until the latter part the last four years, or 400, 500 years, uh, praying as an individual to an individual God who was interested in him or her was non-existent for the first thousand years of Judaism and only developed slightly and then vaguely after that. So much of the Psalms were written for people to recite or sing in temple ceremonies. So, if you think about it, most of the people couldn't read. So therefore, praying or handing out a bunch of prayers would have been worthless because the majority of the people could not read. And therefore, Praying in the way we think of it, uh, picking up a book like this, uh, or, uh, you know, the Bible, and having all the Psalms written out there, that would have been worthless for the majority of the people. And yes, the Psalms were written down, but they were kept as records within the temple. And their ceremonies were made up of various songs that were written and sung only by those people who could read. So personal prayer was not common in those days. And even for a long period of time, even in Christian circles, personal prayer was not real common because people didn't know how to pray because they didn't know how to read. And that doesn't mean that they were dumb people or stupid or anything. It just means they were uneducated in a formal way. So there's a, a, a lot of history behind the Psalms. And that's what we'll go through. Now, I've listed, I think, about 10 or so Psalms here that we'll just pick up and use as examples. One that I don't have here, but I'd like you to look into it, is Psalm 36. It is, there's an interesting thing, and I'm going to repeat some of this next week. Out of the 150 Psalms, 
there's only seven of them that are considered penitential psalms. Lord, forgive me for this or forgive me for that. Most of the psalms, and I think what I'd like you to do is you, as you read through these, and you can read all of them if you want, that's up to you, uh, you will see that there's very little usage of forgive me, Lord, for this or that. Yes, they have seven of them. Psalm 36 is one of them. Psalm 51 is another, and a few others, all right? But there's only seven that are considered penitential psalms. What I've tried to do in the past is to categorize these. And I found out that this was almost a hopeless task because several of the psalms could fit into two or more categories. Uh, so if anyone wants to look at this, you're welcome to it. I'll leave it up here. Uh, but it is, there's no point in me passing this out because it just doesn't really do you any good. All right. So we have any questions? All right. I hope that you will enjoy reading the Psalms. I hope you've enjoyed our discussion today. Uh, I think, as I've said, both of these books, Kohelet and Songs, can be of value to our understanding and our personal prayer because it helps us to see, in the case of Kohelet, uh, the opposite side. Look at the positive side from what he is saying. And thank God for that. There is a time for everything, and everything does have its place, but that's not the end of it. There is a reason for things being as they are, and if we don't understand what those reasons are, that is an occasion for prayer. Ask God to help you understand. And there's nothing new under the sun. Well, I feel that's totally a misunderstanding, a lack of appreciation for what we do have, right? And vanity of vanities, all is vanity? No, I would not say that. Again, there is a purpose for everything, and everything has a purpose. And what is the meaning of life and death? Uh, I think that's obvious to us in Christian understanding of life and death.